Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Chris Lamb, head teacher at Enfield Grammar School. Chris, hello. Hello, how are you? I am well. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. We might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? The word leader means to me is someone that is that is given the responsibility of, of taking something forward, some team forward, some establishment, some business forward, um, and 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 driving it forward. You know, sharing the vision, etc., and being the person ultimately responsible for for ensuring that, that the business or whatever it is improves and gets better. So, an awful lot of responsibility put on the shoulders of, of, of school leaders. Mm. And how would you describe personal leadership style? I think that's kind of evolved. I mean, a phrase that I hear awful lot at interviews is, is situational because there are lots and lots of different leadership models out there. So I, I kind of, you know, I, I can be transformational. I can be transactional depending on the situation. So even though I don't like the phrase situational, it all depends on, on what, what, what I'm having to deal with at that particular time. Um, very collegial. Um, and, I, and I really, you know, I pass an awful lot of responsibility onto people that work for me, uh, you know, and allow them to get on with, with their own kind of remit and they, they feedback to me. So transformational, but if need be, I, I can be pretty transactional and tell people what they need to do and how they need to do it. But, but collegial, I think, overarching is my leadership style. Now, of course, in your uh, workplace, which is, of course, a school, uh, you're leading to distinct different groups of individuals, your staff and your pupils. Do you use different leadership techniques on the two different groups or do you manage them in the same way? Um. I think I'm probably firmer with the, the children because I think they need those kind of boundaries. Of course. Uh, I also have governors and parents. Uh, so there's kind of four. And so there's four stakeholders really that I have to lead and, and liaise with. But I, I think I would be firmer. Um, I, I would generally have more fun, I think, with staff. I'd like to have a bit more fun sometimes with the boys. But, you know, at times it's just not appropriate. <laughs> so they need they need to have a bit of a firm hand at times just to help them line up in, a, in, a, in an appropriate order, etc. So I think I do do it differently just because of the sort of maturity levels of, of, the, of the adults versus the children. Now, there must be certain challenges involved in leading a, a school because, of course, as you mentioned before, uh, you are dealing with parents and sometimes uh, parents can get overly protective of their, of their offspring. Uh, how yeah. do you deal with those situations? It's very, very difficult. I think the, the first thing to have is complete and utter empathy for parents. You know, as a parent myself, I understand that, that your child is, is your life, is your, your everything. So if, if, if I were to feel that my, my children were being unfairly treated by a, by, a, by a teacher or by a student at the school, you know, I'd be the first to go in and, and ask what the school's doing about it. So I, so I understand that, that however kind of emotive or irrational or, or passionate a parent might be in a particular situation, that they're coming in to protect, in their mind, protect their loved ones. So I, I immediately empathize with the parent and try and diffuse. Um, and it's incredibly difficult at times. You know, I've, we've got over uh, 1,100 students at this school and each one of those students is a child to, to a set of parents. So, you know, it, it's a tremendous responsibility, the idea of loco parentis when the, when the parents hand over their children at the start of the day for us to look after, educate, keep safe, protect and, and love to a, respect, to a degree. So I, I don't take it lightly at all. And so I, 
I would empathize hugely with anybody, any difficult parent coming in who's very, very angry. And I would sit and listen to, to, to their issues. But uh, I think empathy is, is, is a strong word for, for me, effective school leaders. Let's go back to the very beginning of your career when you were first starting out in your journey. Was there any particular circumstance or individual who formed the way that you lead today? I think the first person that inspired me to move into teaching, and I suppose being a classroom teacher is a form of leadership, you know, you're leading the students within your classroom. It was my English teacher, Mr. David Novell, uh, back in Lancaster, um, when I was a student of, of literature that really sparked my passion for, for literature. Um, and then I moved into teaching and realized quite quickly that it wasn't literature that I really loved. Actually, it was engaging uh, students to become a lover of literature. Um, so I moved very quickly into kind of comprehensive education and, and, and loved, loved seeing the spark. In, in, in boys' and girls' eyes when, when they suddenly engaged with a text or a play or a poem. Um, and then uh, I returned, interestingly, to my school where I was a student. I became uh, an NQT teacher at the school where I was a student, so some of the staff were still there. And there were members of the SLT that, that treated me with huge respect uh, when I was a student, and I, I I worked with them when I became a teacher at the school and I, I respected them. So, you know, there are a number of people in my first school as a student and as a, as a, as a teacher that, that sort of showed me the, the idea of, of, of loving and caring and understanding this concept of, of loco parentis, that uh, we're not just teachers, you know, we're entrusted with, with, with little human beings and, and that kind of pastoral care I take really, really seriously because, um, as I say, it's a huge responsibility to have so many children given to us at the start of the day. Uh, you know, we need to understand them as human beings. So the pastoral care was something that I was very impressed with of my um, senior leaders when I first started teaching in Lancaster. Now, of course, you just hit on that uh, quite efficiently, uh, that it is a, a bit of a stressful situation having this this control of these children passed on to your you and your staff. How do yeah. you manage your staff's stress? Um, there's a number of things. I think I try and ascertain what it is that's causing them stress and try and reduce that. So if it be the behavior of the students, if it's workload, if it's marking, uh, so try and improve those things. And also then trying to bring in things such as, um, you know, we have, we have a healthcare that we buy into for our staff. Uh, we have kind of rewards to staff. We have uh, heads, the head teachers heroes. I do something half termly with, where um, staff are nominated and then I, I pick out randomly from a hat and they get a day off and I become them for the day. So I've, I've been a food technician and I've been a site manager and I've also been sort of a history teacher and a geography teacher. So little things like that that, that just show that we're aware of stress. But I think fundamentally, you need to deal with the thing that's causing the most stress. And, and, and I would say in secondary schools across the country, mm-hmm. that would be the behavior of, of children because I think children, you know, are um, can be difficult things to deal with um, for a whole raft of reasons. So it's a two-pronged approach really it's dealing with the thing that's causing the stress and also helping them manage their stress through kind of days off or days off in lieu etc so a two-pronged approach to help with stuff stress is it getting uh, increasingly difficult to deal with and discipline uh, students i think it is yeah i think there are more children now that are, that, that are openly defiant and i i, I see that um, when, I, when I when I go into the town at the end of the day to help our kids get onto the buses safely, etc., just just the way that, that some teenagers interact with the police, you know, these kind of ultimate authority figure. I think children are very very um, adept at knowing their own rights, but certainly not not adept at following their own responsibilities. So yeah, I think I think 
difficult, uh, more difficult children are, are, are coming into schools, in my opinion, than, than was the case 10 to 15 years ago. What can be done to address this? I think it's it's a, it's a massively complicated issue. I think it's to, it's ultimately a reflection of, of, of ten to eleven years of austerity. I think social issues, I think housing issues, I think poverty issues create problems, create more more damage to children through no fault of their own. A lot of our children are damaged by the time they get to ten years of age, and it's very difficult to unpick that. So I think money is a is a huge issue. Uh, better teachers, which you would probably get through better recruitment, which you might get through uh, more money. So austerity has been a key area. And, and I also think the sort of the, I don't know, the, 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 the standard or the, um, the standing of the teaching profession has been, has dwindled over the last 10 to 15 years. So I think it needs, um, I'm not saying a rebranding, but we just need to attract better people into the profession. And that can be done through a number of ways, but essentially giving schools more money would help them attract better candidates, I think. But isn't this also an issue that um, generates from the home with lack of discipline in the home as well? Yeah, completely. But I think most usually that tends to link to deprivation, you know, where you've got parents having to uh, work two or three jobs or not doing the things that, that, that probably you and I would regard as, as good parents and, you know, sitting down with their children at the end of the day, asking how the homework's gone, what homework have you got, sitting down, having dinner around the table and conversing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, that that's, that's more difficult, potentially more challenging in families where there's more deprivation and maybe both parents aren't at home at the end of the day. Mm. Um, I think the, I think screen issues, I think social media issues is, is, is a massive thing that, that's changed in the last 10 to 15 years, creating course, all kinds yes. of mental illness issues in, in our teenagers. You know, they're not, they're not used to having conversations. A lot of them are isolating when they go home because, you know, the, the, the tablet is a, is, is a form of electrical babysitter. So I think there's a whole, whole range of issues that, that we, and we try to work with our parents. We try and help our parents, educate our parents because, you know, parenting isn't a skill that you're taught, is it? It's just something that you're kind of expected just to understand and get. And I just think that isn't the case with a number of parents, the parents of the boys that come to grammar. Some of them mm-hmm. find it very difficult to be effective parents at home. And, and that leaves it incredibly difficult for schools to apply those sort of standards or expectations of behavior and civility, et cetera, that, that we'd like parents to instill. So it's a tough job, but it's... Um, you know, it, it's one that's really essential because a lot of the parents haven't got those skills, so they need the skills mm-hmm. to help them become better parents. Well, unfortunately, our time together is very quickly drawing to its close. But, but before I let you go, what does next 12 months have in store for Enfield Grammar? I think continuing the upward trend, we, we, we're getting better year on year. Our results are getting better, which means we're getting um, better destinations for our students, which is helping generate social mobility, which is, you know, one of the reasons that I came into the profession is to help uh, to help children sort of aspire and to, and to move up the social ladder. So it, it's to continue what we're doing. The last three years we've got better and, and hopefully next year we'll continue in that trend. Well, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you, and I very much hope to speak with you on the program again in the near future. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. That was Chris Lamb, head teacher at Enfield Grammar School. And now, if you haven't heard it before, it's Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? 
<laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realize that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where... Um, so Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over the years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you, you're very... Fortunate, I think you, you you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and uh, a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood, and of course uh, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life, and that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely, and in those early days um, at. West Ham uh, with with a manager obviously like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players, and of course they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peters? I think probably. Well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, mm-hmm. again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain. Um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, w- would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier he played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties. 
to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, uh, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, up naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a, a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time at maybe overly strict by the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn suit and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising they were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Grees in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just 
a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important, to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It it's too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want you got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or 400 people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. 
And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I had a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses itself, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to come up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then I, again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, me laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... It would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And, and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with... Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. Their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just 
luck. That's absolute leader show. He'd be the best example, of course, in in football terms today. Uh, Easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely. Mm. You've got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing. Astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no Mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, Good answer. (laughs) The straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at There's that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath, and there was nobody. And I, going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish. After '66, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was. A big part. I can't stress how big a part that was, and I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course, but without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it. Yes, the word, the word is team. the word is the word is team. Absolutely, and I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, 
what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. If you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.